morning, everyone. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 19. This is God's holy word. Now I make known to you, brothers, the gospel which I proclaimed as good news to you, which you also received, in which also you stand, by which you, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast the word which I proclaimed to you as good news, unless you believed for nothing, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was risen, was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he appeared to James and then all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also, for I am the least of the apostles and not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, preach, and so you believed. Now if Christ is preached, then he has been raised from the dead, that he has been raised from the dead. How do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also in, is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we bore witness against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ was raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hope in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Well, turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 once again as we were just looking at the first 19 verses and Brandon read for us. And we'll be looking this morning at verses 20 through 28. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 20 through 28. Resurrection guaranteed. Resurrection guaranteed. On this Resurrection Sunday, we joyfully celebrate Jesus' resurrection from the dead. We're glad to worship our risen King. But can we be certain that even though He has been raised from the dead, that we believers will be raised from the dead? Well, there are a few things that can help us. Think about passages like Psalm 135, verse 6, which assures us that God is able. What it says there is that whatever the Lord pleases, He does. In other words, He's able to do whatever He sets out to do. Whatever is in His mind to do, He does, and no one can thwart Him. So he is able. We also know that He is faithful to His promises. He is faithful to keep 
the promises that He has made to us. A couple of passages. 2 Timothy 2.13, He remains faithful. Why? For He cannot deny Himself. And then Hebrews 10.23, He who promised is faithful. There's a direct connection between God's promises and His faithfulness to keep those promises. But God gives us more than that. He knows that we wrestle and at times we are weak in faith and we doubt and we need more to help us. And so, in addition to knowing the fact that He is able to do these things, He's faithful to keep His promises, He also gives us evidence that we can base our hope on, evidence that gives us confidence that He will do what He has said He will do. And so one way we can look at what we're going to talk about today is this, draw hope from what God has already done. Draw hope from what God has already done. For example, Peter, writing to suffering saints in his first letter Chapter 1, verse 3, he declared that we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so that that letter starts out so gloriously, calling us to think in terms of our salvation came from the fact that when we've been born again, we have this new life because God has raised Jesus from the dead. And it is through His resurrection that we share in resurrection life. So in other words, what Peter is saying there is that this has already impacted us. His Jesus' resurrection from the dead has already impacted us. And what we're going to see is that there is more in, in the ways that it impacts us. That is... Jesus' resurrection gives us hope that we too will be resurrected. A good illustration of this principle that God gives us evidence so that it can bolster our hope, to strengthen our hope. A good illustration of it is the Feast of First Fruits. In the Old Testament, the Jews had this festival where they brought to God the very first portion of their crops. It reminded them of three things, at least. One, that God is the source of all that we have. And so, think about when you give thanks to the Lord for what He has done, for the various things, blessings in your life. One of the things that that's doing is it's reminding you, everything, every good gift, James says, is from our Father in heaven, right? And so... That's the first thing it reminds us. The second thing is it reminds us to be grateful for His good gifts. And so when we we think about how He has given these things to us, and even, like, for example, when you bring your offering, uh, when you go and you put it back there in the little chest, you should think, not necessarily at that moment, but think on the day you bring it, that, that... I need to be grateful, ever grateful, and Lord, I do this. It should be an act of worship. Lord, I do this. I I put my offering in there because I'm grateful for what you have done. You've given all this, everything I have, you've given it to me. And I'm grateful for it. But there's a third thing that we sometimes miss. And when we come to the New Testament and the the, uh, authors there make a big deal out of this rightly, and we're going to see today is that it reminds us that that those first fruits remind us that the full harvest is coming. The full harvest 
is coming. And that's the aspect we're going to talk about today. It gives us hope. That first sheaf of the grain, for example, that they gave to the Lord, it reminded them that, oh yeah, there's a whole harvest coming now. This, this concept of first fruits is used, it's picked up in the New Testament. So they, as they look back and they were well versed in these Old Testament feasts and teachings and, uh, the, and it said, okay, we've got a great illustration here of biblical truths that we want to bring out to you now in the New Testament because of what Christ has done for us. For example, first fruits is used to picture the hope that we ought to have based on the evidence that we've seen that God is working to save people. For example, James says that the earliest Christians were the first fruits. In other words, there are more to come. What he's saying is that it's not just that, okay, we've had a lot of people come to know the Lord in those early days, and sometimes there were several thousand that would come to the Lord, But what James is saying is that's not all. That God's not done. Those are just the first fruits. Those are just like that first sheaf of of wheat or barley or the grain that they would bring. And there's going to be a fuller harvest of believers. Paul would use this in Romans 16, talking about believers in Stephanos' household. He said they were the first fruits of Achaia. So of this region, they were just the first fruits. But God is going to save so many more even from that region. You see, so he uses this picture of first fruits. Paul's going to use that same picture here in 1 Corinthians 15. He's going to use it to give hope that believers will be raised from the dead. Here, thinking about promises like those that Jesus made in John 6. He said, I myself will raise him up, the one who believes in him, I myself will raise him up on the last day. We have promises in Scripture, promises from Jesus and the apostles that if you believe in Jesus Christ, that Jesus will raise you up in the last day. But... Sometimes we wonder about God's promises. Will they come to pass? Early Christians, even though they were much closer, they still had apostles around. Um, they sometimes struggled with this and doubted, and they needed to have their faith uh, shored up. And so what Paul is going to drive home to us here in this passage, 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty through 28, is this. Fortify your hope with the truth that Christ's resurrection guarantees your resurrection. I'm talking to believers here, those who have put their trust in Jesus Christ. So throughout this message, most of it, I'm going to be talking to believers. Those of you who are not believers, listen attentively, because you will want to be part of that. Okay? Fortify your hope. Strengthen your hope. Gird it up. Build it up. And use this truth to do it, that Jesus' resurrection guarantees your resurrection. And what this is designed to do is to give you confidence in the midst of your struggles. We go through periods where we have troubles, and troubles aplenty. 
gives us confidence. He can give us boldness in, eva- in evangelism. I mean, most of us, you know, we get timid real fast, right? When there's a situation and you're thinking like, well, should I tell somebody about my faith? This person here, you know, sitting next to me or the person I'm talking to here at the store or at school or wherever. And our confidence kind of wanes. And this is one of those things that gives us confidence, boldness in evangelism. It should reform how you live. It should. There's so many truths that should do this, but this is a, a critical one. Jesus' resurrection and the fact that I will be raised should reform the way I live. I, I shouldn't be the same person after I meditate on this. And it should refresh your worship. Those are the things we hope comes out of us really grasping this lesson today that Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians 15. Interesting, this is so beautiful about Scripture because the Holy Spirit had the apostles write a lot of these letters dealing with problems. But what they wrote in the context of those problems becomes so helpful to us and to be able to use it to use these things in our own life to strengthen us in our faith. Now, let's talk about, real quick, two things. What's Paul doing in 1 Corinthians? So as we go to the next slide, you'll see, and Evan talked about this this morning, uh, the structure of 1 Corinthians, just to give you a real quick overview of what's going on. He's doing two things in 1 Corinthians. The first, in chapters 1 through 6, and that's where the dividing is there at seven, chapter 7, verse 1 is the divider. The first six chapters, what he's doing is he's responding to problems that he's heard about, about the people in Corinth, the, the Christians in Corinth. And so you find that he says there, chapter 1, verse 11, For I have been informed concerning you. And people have been tattling on you. Here's some problems. And I want to deal with those. But the second half of the book, or second portion of the book, 7 through 16, what he's doing there is he's now answering questions from a letter that they had sent him. So we don't have that letter, but we can tell from his answers what questions they were asking. And so that's the section that we're in this morning. He's responding to those questions, and he says, and this is where we know that the book takes a shift, a major shift. Chapter 7, verse 1, now concerning the things about which you wrote. Okay, so it's kind of easy in that regard, an easy way to lay out the book, because Paul is so clear about what he's doing. Chapter 15 is right in that, toward the end of that second section. What he's doing there is he's answering a question they had from their letter, and it was a question about resurrection. And actually, all of chapter 15 is answering that question. We're only going to look at a part of that. The the question they had about resurrection was not about Christ's resurrection. Now, it's all built on Christ's resurrection, but it wasn't about that. That wasn't their problem. The problem they had was... Their own resurrection. They believed, the Corinthians anyway, believed that, yes, Christ was raised from the dead. But, there were some who doubted that believers would be resurrected. Uh, Chapter 15, verse 12, for example... 
Paul said there, we, we read earlier. Now, if Christ is preached that he's been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? See, so there's the problem. And that was apparently the, the question that they were asking about. Is there really a resurrection of the dead? And so they were wrestling with it. What was happening is that they were falling back on their former pagan beliefs. Because in the Greco-Roman world, and particularly with the Greeks, this idea of resurrection was something that they found very repugnant. The reason is, is that in Greek thought, if you go back and read Greek philosophers, for example, in their thought, the this body, the physical body was evil. Everything physical was evil. And that which was good is only that which is we would call like spiritual. Okay? So, like our soul, they would say, is good or potentially good. But our body is bad and it's always bad. And so, they saw the body as a prison for their soul. An evil prison for their soul. And so think about in Acts 17, Paul is preaching there to the Athenians. You know, they're hanging on every word. It's like, wow, this guy is is saying some things we've not heard. This is great. Until he got to that one word. And guess what that one word was? You remember? Resurrection. Then they what? They sneered. Ah, ha, ha, ha. Yeah, we don't believe in that, Paul. In fact, we don't want to believe in that. Why would we want this prison to continue on after death at some point? You see, so in their minds, this is, this is a bad thing, resurrection. Now, I know we didn't grow up with that um, Greek thought, and so it's kind of hard for us to wrap our mind around that. We think, well, you know, I've gotten kind of used to this thing, even though, you know, it gives me all kinds of problems. I still kind of like it. But for them, they were like, man, I want to be rid of this thing. Because my whole problem, they, they thought, problems I have in life are because of this. And so, there, some of them in Corinth are falling back on that pagan thinking that they had. And they were wondering, you know, is there really a resurrection of the dead? So, what Paul does is he, he knows that the Corinthians, the, the church there, they did believe that Jesus was raised. And, of course, he's going to point out that inconsistency to them. They didn't have a problem with the fact that Jesus was raised. So, in the first 11 verses of chapter 15, what he does is he reminds them of that. He reminds them of the gospel. And that gospel, a key point in that gospel is that Jesus was raised. They believed that because they got it from him, he tells them. And then the second thing he does in verses 12 through 19 is to explain that, well, you know, guys, here's your inconsistency, because if there is no resurrection, then Christ hasn't been raised. And then he points out all the problems with that. You remember as Brandon read that for us. If Christ hasn't been raised, then we are in trouble. Uh, think about verses 17 through 19 there, that last part of that section. He says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. 
You see, it's not just that the death of Christ is essential, but the resurrection of Christ is also essential. It's a part of the gospel that we cannot lose. And he says, so if there's no resurrection, Christ hasn't been raised, your faith is worthless, you're still in sin. And he says, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we're of all men the most to be pitied. So he's saying that if there's no resurrection, then all of these, what we've been preaching makes us the most pitiful of people. We deserve the most pity because we've been so far off base. If what you're saying is true. And of course, he's pointing out to them that that's not. And then third, he comes to this section, verses 20 through 28. And what he's doing there is showing how Jesus' resurrection, remember, which they believed in, guarantees our resurrection. And that's what he's going to be teaching us today from these verses. So, first, fortify your hope knowing that your resurrection is guaranteed by Christ's resurrection. Your resurrection is guaranteed by Christ's resurrection. Verse 20. But now, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. So again, what he does is he, he... Lays that foundation again. He comes back to it. He says, you know this. Christ has been raised. I'm going to start there. His argument here goes something like this. You know, you all say that that people can't be raised. But yet, I tell you, Christ has been raised. So let's talk about facts here. Let's not go back to Greek philosophy and Greek religion. Let's talk facts. Jesus has been raised. So look back at these facts that he's building this on. Chapter 15, verses 4 through 6. I'll just read part of that. What he says is the gospel. After verse 3, Christ has died for our sins. Now verse 4. And, you see, this is also essential. He was buried and, again, essential. That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Okay, how do you know that that's a fact? Verse 5. That he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now. But some have fallen asleep. And he appeared to James, all the apostles, and then Paul says to me. So what he's saying is, is is that if you want... Eyewitnesses, remember in a court of law, we require two or more eyewitnesses. They did, and we get that from them, from the the law. What he's saying is, there are more than 500 who saw him alive. You can go talk to them. You can go try to poke holes in their testimony. They're still around. Most of them are still here. And so he says... So I can state this as a fact. Jesus has been raised from the dead. And then Paul, here in verse 20, calls Jesus the firstfruits of those who are asleep. And by asleep, he means here that they've died. Okay? But what does he mean by firstfruits? What's the idea there? We've touched, touched on that a little bit, but come back. let's come back to 
that feast of first fruits. So he's trying to show us the certainty of the believer's resurrection. Remember the, the Corinthians, they were kind of doubtful, like, mm, I don't know if we're going to be raised from the dead. And that becomes a problem because then a bunch of us have died already. And what happens if we die before Jesus returns? <clears throat> and, and so they're, they're seeing that, you know, this is a, this is a problem. So, Paul says, Jesus is the first fruits. Think about it again. When the Jews came in worship to God at this feast, they brought Him the first portion of their crops. And that first portion was a reminder that the full harvest was yet to come. Okay? That's the idea of first fruits. And so what they would do is they would give that first portion to the Lord. They'd bring it to Him and give it to the Lord. And then they would also bring along with it, among other things, a lamb to be sacrificed. Okay, you can see the connections here, right? That Jesus, that how Paul could say that this, this was a picture of Jesus and what He would do. The Feast of Firstfruits was a picture of the fact that Jesus would be like that first sheaf that they would bring and give to God. That guaranteed that there was a whole harvest coming. And if you miss that, then Jesus is that lamb that was also brought. So they would have, you know, this, this sheaf of, of grain, for example, and then they would be leading the lamb. And they're coming in and he says, okay, we know that that's a picture of Jesus. And, and that he is the first fruits of our resurrection. So think about when a farmer would look out on his field. And so, for example, a field of grain, wheat here in the, on the slide, as he would look out on that, what he would do is he would select out enough to make one sheaf, and he'd, he'd cut that and bind it, bundle it up, and then he would take it to the Lord. And he'd bring it, like, to the temple and, you know, or a tabernacle before that, and he'd give it to the Lord, remembering along with that sheep, that lamb. But as he, as he looked out on that harvest, or that, that field ready for harvest, and he would say, okay, part of this, this is going to the Lord. But there's a whole harvest out there after that first sheaf. You see, so it wasn't that, you know, you were, he was to give all of it, the whole harvest to the Lord. It's just, he gave that first sheaf to the Lord. And then all the rest I get to harvest that God provided for me and my family. Got that whole harvest. So you see there's that idea in this first fruits of, of the full harvest that comes after that first portion. God looks out over the field of everyone to be resurrected, that is, raised to life. He looks out in his in his mind and he, he sees all of us that are going to be resurrected. And the first portion, we know, was Jesus. He was the first to be resurrected unto life, if you will, in that sense, okay? To the eternal life with God, okay? He's the first to be resurrected. And, but then there's all of us who are believers in Jesus Christ. That whole field to be resurrected, if you will. Again, the point is, Jesus' resurrection guarantees our resurrection. So Paul's point is that if Christ has been raised according to God's plan, 
then we too shall be raised. Why? Because our resurrection is also part of God's plan. He's going to develop that here in just a moment. What he's saying is that Jesus' resurrection has set in motion our resurrection. You see, it's, it's now, it's like, you know, this, this truck that's careening down the hill. It's set in motion and you're not stopping it. Okay? Jesus' resurrection has set in motion God's plan. This remaining part of God's plan, it has set that in motion. And the next step is our resurrection. Okay? Jesus' resurrection is key to all of this. Gordon Fee explained that Christ's resurrection makes absolutely necessary the resurrection of believers. You see, this is what Paul's trying to get at, and Fee brings this out well. It makes it when because Jesus has been raised, it makes it absolutely necessary that believers, you and I, will be raised. It's not a maybe. The fact that Jesus was raised guarantees that you will be raised if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Now, Paul knows he's good at anticipating uh, people's yeah, but. He knew that some people would say, well, okay, hang on, Paul. You know, we didn't have a problem with Jesus being raised because, well, he's God. We're not. We're just human. So, Paul, aren't you comparing apples and oranges here? I mean, Jesus is God. We're not. This is apples and oranges going on. And Paul says, nope, not at all. I'm comparing apples and apples, and let me show you. Verses 21 and 2. Paul explains, For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. And then here he tells you who these men are. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. And what he's saying here, and you can see on the slide, is that in Adam, like everybody who was in Adam, which is everybody but Jesus, okay? All of those in Adam received spiritual death. That's what was produced from that, and you can see on the slide. But all of those who are in Christ, those who believe in Him, all of those necessarily will be raised from the dead, raised unto life. And so, Paul, what he's saying here is, no, guys, I am comparing apples and apples. Because he says, Adam was a man, and you're a man, and using that term generically, right? We all died in Adam. But Jesus was, yes, he was God, but he was also man. And you're, again, man. And if you believe in Jesus, just as you died through a man, now you will be raised through a man. So you see what he's doing here. He anticipates their objection and he blows it away. He says, that, that's not at all. What, what you guys were saying is not at all logical. It doesn't even make sense. Here, let me show you. Again, the point. Your resurrection is guaranteed by Christ's resurrection. 
Okay, so now second, fortify your hope knowing your resurrection is an essential part of God's plan. He's going to talk about that here in verses 23 through 26. Your resurrection is an essential part of God's plan. And I hope as we go through this, as you've read this passage before in your Bible reading, there may be times where you kind of get to some of these verses and you're kind of like, oh, I don't know what he's talking about here. Why is he talking about the end times and Jesus giving the kingdom up to the Father and, you know, and you just scratch your head. Well, okay, hopefully this will start making sense, okay? Your resurrection is an essential part of God's plan. What he's saying is that if God has fulfilled the first step in his plan, then he certainly will fulfill the rest of that plan. You see, God is not one to kind of get something started and then kind of like, well, I was kind of hoping to pull this off, but it just didn't quite work out. Or I changed my mind. None of those things are true of God. If He made the first step happen, the rest will happen. All the way to the end, He says. And what he's doing here is he's showing that our resurrection is a necessary step in God's plan. It's necessary to bring about the culmination that God is aiming for here, the restoration of all things, the culmination of history. Look at verse 23. But each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits, number one, after that, and he's talking about Christ's resurrection, Second, after that, those who are Christ's at His coming, in other words, our resurrection. And then we'll come back here in a minute to verse 24, which is then step three. Okay? So, note the order here. Christ's resurrection, our resurrection, and then the end. Step one of God's plan to restore all things has already happened. Okay? It's already happened. Christ is already risen from the dead. He is the first fruits of all who will be raised up. Remember that, that whole harvest, that field ready for harvest of all of us who will be raised. And Jesus is the first fruits of that. He's already been raised. Step one has happened. Step two hasn't happened yet. That will happen when believers who have died are raised from the dead. And he says that'll be at his coming. Now, we're not going to go into all the little details of eschatology here. And we don't need to because Paul's not doing that here. Okay. What Paul here is just talking in broad strokes. And he says, okay, the next thing, because I'm talking about your resurrection, is that Jesus was raised. Then next, you're going to be raised at his coming when he returns. Okay. This is the second coming of Christ. When he returns, he says here, for those who are his, those who belong to him, those who are in him. Okay. Uh, turn over to First Thessalonians 4, if, if you'd like. Uh, or you can just listen. First Thessalonians 4, <clears throat> verse 16, he talks about it. He gives a little more detail, but very similar uh, thought here. He's dealing with a problem with... People who have died, are they going to, you know, some in Thessalonica, people were saying, well, you know, if you die before Jesus returns, <laughs> too bad. You got to be around when he returns. So in 1 Thessalonians 4.16, Paul says there to that church, 
For the Lord himself would descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And then verse 17, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. And comfort one another with these words. So this that's the second step. Okay, again, in broad strokes is what he's talking about. The second step. First step was Jesus was raised. Second step, believers will be raised. Okay, and then there he adds a little bit because, okay, so what about those of us who haven't died when Jesus returns? Well, we'll be glorified uh, apparently on the way up as we are being caught up to be with the Lord. The third step that's to happen comes after our resurrection from the dead. Look at verse 24 back in 1 Corinthians 15. Christ is raised, we're raised. Then comes the end when He delivers up the kingdom to the God and Father, when He has abolished all rule and all authority and power. Christ's final act as Messianic King, the Messiah, will be to conquer every one of God's enemies. That is, all rule, all authority, all power. Never again will any of those be able to even push back on God's plan, much less thwart it. They won't be able to work against God in any way. So, as we are breaking this second point down, we said first, note the order, Christ's resurrection, our resurrection, then the end. Second, note where we are in history. Note the current step. We're still at step one. Okay? So don't let someone come and tell you things like what happened in in, uh, Thessalonica. Oh, you know, the Lord has already returned. Jesus has returned. You missed it. You know, had people upset. Okay, in Corinth, they're saying, well, you know, we're not really going to be resurrected. We're just going to stay disembodied spirits for all eternity. And people are kind of, oh, okay, that doesn't sound like what Jesus said. And Paul says, pay attention to where we're at in God's plan. We're at step one still. Okay? God hasn't skipped a step. That's what he's saying. And, and I'm trying to show you that he's, he's telling them. The one where we're being raised from the dead, God hasn't gotten to that yet. So he does, he here refers back to Psalm 110.1 and what that glorious, I love Psalm 110.1, just beautiful way it talks about Jesus. And he says that Christ must reign at his father's right hand until all of his enemies are defeated. Okay. Well, guess what? Where is Christ right now? He's at God's right hand, right? You see, the book of Hebrews makes a big deal out of the fact that he finished his work as high priest, so he did what? He sat down. Where? At God's right hand. Okay? And so, that's where he is right now. In other words, it's step one. That's what Paul's trying to drive home. We're at step one. Jesus is now reigning at his Father's right hand until all of his enemies are defeated. Rising from the dead, he's now seated at his Father's right hand. And so what, in verse 26, now, what Paul is going to do is jump ahead to the to the last enemy, the very last enemy to be defeated. Because he says, okay, he's going to sit there at God's right hand until all of his enemies are defeated. Okay? And, and there's a sense in which they've suffered defeat, but they're not gone. 
verse 26, the last enemy that will be abolished is death. Now, the power of death has been broken. When Jesus died and then rose from the dead, he broke death's power, obviously, right? Because he rose from the dead. He showed what was true is what he said. I'm going to take my own life up. I lay my life down. Nobody's taking it from me. And I'm going to raise it up again. And he did. He's showing that I just broke the power of death when he raised, when he rose from the dead. But, Paul says, which we ought to know is obvious, death hasn't been abolished yet. Why? Well, we still die. And if Jesus tarries, all of us will die and before Jesus returns. So, <clears throat> but, and so you see, that's another proof as to why we are still in step one. Because death is still around. Okay? Because death, death being abolished is the end of step two, beginning of step three, right? Revelation 20, verse 14, after the great white throne judgment. I love this. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Okay, that hadn't happened yet. You know, I don't know about you. I haven't stood before the great white throne judgment yet, or no, I haven't seen anyone else standing in front. It hadn't happened yet. Okay, we're still in step one. At that judgment, Jesus will take death and Hades and he will throw them into the lake of fire. Again, the main point. Your resurrection is guaranteed and it is still to come. Why? Because we're at step one. Okay? So don't let anybody convince you that you're not going to be resurrected. It just hadn't happened yet because God hadn't planned for it to happen yet. Okay? His plan is unfolding, but He hasn't unfolded that second step yet. Third, fortify your hope knowing your resurrection will happen prior to Trinitarian glory being restored. Your resurrection will happen prior to Trinitarian glory being restored. Okay, that's what he's talking about in these last two verses, 27 and 28. Here, now he's quoting from Psalm 8, verse 6. And that psalm prophesied that God the Father will put all things in subjection under Messiah's feet. Look at verse 27. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. The Father has put all things under Jesus' feet. But when he says all things are in subjection, it's evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. That last half of the verse, what he's saying is that God the Father is not put into subjection to Jesus. Even now, even though God the Father is exalting Jesus. Think about John 17. You know, and, and other passages where God the Father and the Holy Spirit, right now, what they're doing in this time frame, this this era of history, this church age, is to exalt Jesus. And, of course, that's our job too, right? So, God the Father is exalting Jesus, the Messiah. And He will reign. Messiah will reign. And He is reigning in many senses right now. And He will reign on earth but what he's saying is in all of that, the Father is never subjected to Jesus, okay, to, the, to God the Son, 
Okay, that's all he's saying in the second half of that verse. Back to the first part. <clears throat> what he's saying is that not only must death be abolished, and it will be abolished when all the last of the believers are raised from the dead, and those who are alive are glorified. At that point, death can't touch any of us. And at that point, great white throne judgment, he cast death into the lake of fire. So not only does that have to happen, that'll happen after we're raised from the dead, but there's still one more step after that. Look at verse 28. And when all things are subjected to him, remember the last will be death, then the Son himself, Jesus, also will be subjected to the one, the Father, who subjected all things to him, Jesus, that God, all three, may be all in all. Okay? So, what he means is that Christ's earthly kingdom, whatever your eschatology, you know, there's a sense in which he's reigning now at his Father's right hand. If you're a premier like me, he's going to be coming to earth and reign. Uh, whatever your eschatology is, that that the earthly aspect of Jesus' messianic kingdom will then be brought in line with and merged with God's eternal kingdom. That is, God where He reigns, if you will, in heaven over everything. So we're not going to end up with these two separate kingdoms forever. So whatever you know, you think of, of Christ's kingdom, the Messiah's kingdom, that will one day be merged in with God's overall rule. Okay? <clears throat> and he says, so that God may be all in all. John MacArthur explains it well. He says, from the time of Jesus' incarnation until the time when he presents the kingdom to the Father, Christ is in the role of a servant, fulfilling his divine task as assigned by his Father. But when that final work is accomplished, he will assume his former, full, glorious place in the perfect harmony of the Trinity. So when he says here with this phrase that God may be all in all, he's saying that God in that day will reign supreme everywhere and in every way. Right now, Satan is still the prince of the power of the air and he's still moving around the earth and doing his horrible things. And, and people, most of the people of the world are doing their own thing, serving themselves. But one day, in this eternal kingdom of God's, God will reign supreme everywhere and in every way. See, God's plan is working toward the glory and the harmony that existed within the Trinity before He created anything. Now, that glory and harmony is still there in the Trinity, but it's not here. It's not fully in the church as it ought to be. But it will be. And that's what Paul's talking about here. His plan will be complete when that glory and harmony exist perfectly in creation as well as it has been in the Trinity. God's plan requires 
that we be raised from the dead. That should give us hope. That should give us confidence, right? It's not a maybe. God has already said, this is my plan. And he's let us know what his plan is. And a necessary part of that plan for God to bring everything to the end that he has ordained is for us to be raised, for believers in Jesus Christ to be raised. And that should give us hope. That should give us confidence. How will the hope of being resurrected, how will it impact your life, believer? Will it give you confidence in the face of troubles? Will it give you confidence in the threat of being rejected when you should be telling someone about Jesus? How will it reform the way you live? Oh, that we don't study this passage and talk about Jesus' resurrection here on Resurrection Day and leave here unchanged. Oh, may that that not happen. Leave here saying, Holy Spirit, change me. Drive this firmly into my head and into my heart so that I am someone different than the person that showed up here this morning. That I have the hope and the confidence that you give us in your word based on these truths. How will it refresh your joy in worship? Think about that. How will it refresh your joy in worship? It ought to change the way we worship, right? And so may that be what results. Now, as we think about the Lord's Supper, some of you haven't yet trusted in Christ. And if you never do, you won't be raised up to eternal life. I call upon you, everyone here, and I know a, a number of you young people, um, hear the gospel again and believe this gospel. Trust in this gospel. Back to verses 3 through 5, Paul said, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also, what I received. It's this. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Hear that gospel. Believe that gospel. Trust it. And be saved. And you too, like the rest of us, will be raised up on that last day. For those of you who have trusted in Christ As you come to the table, remember that Jesus died to forgive your sins, and that's why we come to the table week after week, to remember that. But it should also remind you that He was raised up to give you life. Not just pay for your sins. That's not the whole work. He was raised up to give you life. Okay, so think about that life. What impact? 
will these thoughts on Jesus' resurrection, giving you, guaranteeing your resurrection, what fresh impact will it have on your life?